would love to have you guys um, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. I'm going to invite Jeff Vale to come up. And if you are able to stand, that would be great. We're trying to stay in the practice of honoring God's word by standing when we read the word. I know it's a little like high liturgy for us, but it's okay. Uh, so we can do it. This is what you will hear from Jeff is more important than anything I will say about it. So God's word is powerful on its own. So Three. There you go. What did I say? John. Okay. You can choose John or Matthew. No, Matthew. Yeah. And, and, and he left me his NIV because he didn't think I had one. <laughs> but I do. <clears throat> in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now John's clothes were camel hair. He had a leather belt about his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and from all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to him, when he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't think you can say to yourself, We've got Abraham as our father, that's good enough. I tell you what, God can raise up from these very stones, sons of Abraham. The axe is already laid to the root, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barns and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The word of God. So Lord, we, um, we just want to acknowledge that your word is true and good. And that instructs us in righteousness. It teaches us how to follow you. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd breathe on us today. Lord, that you would use me somehow to say something that would point people to you. Lord, and uh, their hearts would just, um, and minds would be formed uh, to become more like Jesus. Lord, I pray that I'll just draw attention to your name and your glory for your fame, Lord. Uh, no, no other reason. I thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Great. All right, so if you were with us last week uh, or you happen to catch up with the podcast or whatever, uh, you know that we started a series in the Gospel of Matthew. Actually, we started this way before we started this back at Christmas time. We talked about the promise of God and how the, uh, this, this book of Matthew, this is uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which um, is, if, if you're not super familiar with the Bible and how the books of the Bible work, uh, so there are four accounts of the life of Jesus, like little biographies, and those we call Gospels because they tell the good news about who Jesus was. And so this is the very first one in your Bible, the very first book of the Bible. And that gospel, uh, and it's telling the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one that God had promised way back when through the prophets in the Old Testament, and that Jesus comes and he fulfills all these promises of God. And so that's what the whole book about is about. And, and one of the things that's really important to the writer who, uh, of, of this, who was one of Jesus' disciples, is that we think about Jesus as like a new Moses, 
who um, instructs us how we are supposed to live uh, as God's people, just like Moses did back in the day. And there are all these parallels in the first few chapters in the Gospel of Matthew with things that happened in Moses and the people of Israel way back when. And so, uh, so one of the things that happens just before this, we talked about this last week, uh, is there's these wise men that come and they uh, come before and there's an evil king and then, uh, and then Jesus and his family escapes into Egypt and they found themselves kind of displaced refugees in Egypt, just like the, the Hebrew people did way back in Exodus in, in, your, in the Old Testament. So, and then just like uh, those people, they had to kind of pass through these waters. Remember the, part, the story of the parting of the Red Sea? Do you remember that story? So guess what's going to happen here? The, the, right before the story of John the Baptist, we have Jesus coming out of Egypt, and the very first story we have is a story of people going through waters in baptism. And the very next thing that happens after this is there's a group of people that uh, Jesus goes into the desert for a time of testing in the wilderness, just like the Israelites did way back in the Old Testament. And for 40, 40 days, Jesus is tempted by the devil. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Just like for 40 years, the Israelites were testing the devil. You're getting the pattern here, right? So it, it's, it's so clear. So, so the Gospel of Matthew wants us to think about Jesus as this new Moses who's bringing in kind of the promises of God. And here in this chapter, it focuses on John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist in this story and the way he's, he's framed here um, is kind of presented to us as a bridge between the old and the new. When we read the story and hear about who John the Baptist is and the way he's described and all of that, it's supposed to be cueing our imaginations to the prophets of the Old Testament. So he lives out in the wilderness and he eats locusts and honey and he's kind of like this wild kind of person. Even the way he speaks and he talks kind of sounds like the prophets of old. And he, and, and he has this message of repentance. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, and actually, the scriptures say really explicitly here that the, he was one who was promised who would come before the Messiah would come. And so he is the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so everything in our imagination, if we knew, if you knew things about the Old Testament, would be going, oh, things are about to change. There's something really significant that's about to happen. Actually, what would be triggered in your mind, you'd be thinking specifically about the prophet Elijah. The way the prophet Elijah is described is exactly how the prophet, uh, how John the Baptist is described. And even later in this gospel, Jesus will say, this is like Elijah come again. That, that, that John the Baptist is like Elijah come all over again. And he's preparing for something significant about to happen. And so the people in this day, as they would have heard John and seen John and doing all these things, they would have gotten their attention and they would have been paying attention going, hold on a second, we were told that someone like Elijah would come again. And we were told that one would come and he would bring this message of preparing the way for the Lord. And we were told that one day he would get ready, he would prepare his people for the kingdom to come. And we were told that maybe the Messiah would come and they would, they would be thinking, oh my gosh, is this the guy? And actually what we learn, uh, even outside of the Bible, is that John the Baptist was an incredible, incredibly popular figure. There's a, a historian that's written, uh, who, who took kind of chronicled Jewish history just after the time of Jesus. His name is Josephus. I like that name. Say Josephus. 
It's hard to not smile when you say the name Josephus. I don't know why I like that name, but his name is Josephus, and he records all of these things that happen around this time. And in his history book, outside of the Bible, he talks about how John the Baptist led this reform movement in the, in the Jewish. And actually, John, and Josephus dedicates more time to talking about John the Baptist than he does about Jesus. It's interesting. So John the Baptist was a really big deal, and so much so that he stirred up trouble, and it's listed and it's noted by Josephus and other people that John the Baptist stirred up so much trouble that he ends up getting killed by another king named Herod, not the Herod from our story last week, a different Herod. It's kind of like, you know, lots of people have the name Bob, there were lots of people with the name Herod back then, right? So this other king named Herod kills John the Baptist, and that story is actually recorded in our Gospels. Remember the story of the head on the platter? Yeah? It's a kind of an intense one. Because John the Baptist was a troublemaker. He went around and he, and he shared the story and it got everybody's attention. So what's happening in the story is people are coming out from the cities and going out into the wilderness to find out what the heck is going on. And as they're, as they're doing this, all these people are begin to be drawn out. And some of those people find themselves really compelled with this message of John the Baptist. And they begin to start, it says, confessing their sins. There's some sort of thing that's happening where they're like, I don't know what's going on, but I have to tell the things that are in my heart, the hidden things, the sinful things that are in my heart. I have to confess them right now. And so they're really moved by this while the religious leaders of the day are kind of bothered by this because I don't know if you remember from our story last week, they don't like when things get disrupted. And they certainly don't like when it's not one of their boys doing the stuff, right? John the Baptist is not one of the guys who is in, in cahoots with kind of the priests and the, and the important people. He's out there kind of doing his own thing in the wilderness. Well, this stirs up trouble with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they come out to, not to confess their sins, but basically to, to see what is going on and do we need to put this thing down. This is exactly the same thing that happens with Jesus. And guess what happens to Jesus, right? He gets executed too because he also was a troublemaker just like John the Baptist. Actually, some people think, and I don't know if there's any truth to this, that Jesus might have actually learned under John the Baptist for a season and that before Jesus actually started his public ministry, he was following John. That's an interesting thought. Uh, I don't know whether or not it's true, but it's, but it's an interesting idea because there are some things that Jesus says that John the Baptist says, things that we don't necessarily like that Jesus says, like Jesus also calls people a brood of vipers. Like, we're gonna talk about what that means in just a second. But like, but John the Baptist comes and he has two things that he does that really, really stir up trouble. First, he has a message of repentance and then he's got a method that he's gonna, he's gonna involve to get people to engage in this repentance. And that message and that method is what really stirs things up. And where all this is going today is I wanna talk a little bit about how repentance is the road to renewal. How repentance is the road to renewal. So John the Baptist comes on the scene, he begins to preach this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The idea of the kingdom of heaven, that's not a new concept if you've been around our church. It's interchangeable with the idea of the, the kingdom of God. The, oftentimes the Jewish people, when they would refer to God, they would refer to heaven rather than say the name of God. And so when we, hear, when we read in the gospel of Matthew, kingdom of heaven, it's the same exact thing as the kingdom of God. And this idea of the kingdom of God, there was, it was a promise. The promise was that one day 
God would somehow step into the world and into human history in a unique and a special way, and that he would bring the way that he rules in heaven, which is uncontested, down to earth, that all the peace and joy and righteousness in heaven would one day begin to step into earth, and that earth would begin to experience some of the healing, a taste of what's in heaven, and that, he, that, that somehow God himself would rule over the earth like a king. That's the promise. And that is a promise of renewal. It's a promise of the restoration of all things. It was what the people of God had been waiting for forever and ever. Now, there were lots of different competing ideas about when this would happen and exactly what this would look like. Many of the people of the day thought of this as an actual physical kingdom, that there would be a physical king like David who would come in and conquer the Romans. Remember, the Romans are in charge of the land, that they would conquer the Romans and kick the Romans out. And then they would once again establish a king in the line of David who would sit on the throne and it would be like the glory days of Israel, right? And so a lot of people are expecting that, but then Jesus comes on the scene and turns all of that on its, its head. He doesn't do any of the things you would expect a, a strong, powerful, physical king to come and do. Instead, he hangs out with sinners. He hangs out with the poor people. He doesn't want anything to do with the people who are, have, have their kind of it all together and the religious ruling class. He's constantly provoking them. Like, he does all these things that a king shouldn't do. He doesn't have a home. He, like, wanders around. Like he sends his followers out to like to go out and leave all their possessions behind. He doesn't come in and establish his rule. Instead, what he does do is he establishes rule and reign over darkness. He casts out demons who are oppressing people. He overcomes sickness that people are suffering with. He includes people who, who feel like they don't have a place to belong. And he, he begins to explain how his kingdom is completely different than the kingdom that they were expecting. And, and, and with that kingdom was the restoration and the renewal of all things. It is the thing that they wanted, and it's the thing that we want, even if we don't know that we want it. Right? All of us can look around the world today and see that it's not the way it should be. Right? We can all look around at the oppression and the injustice. We can look around at the sickness and the death and all of those kinds of things and go, God, there, there has to be more. Right? Right? And what Jesus came is to begin the, his rule and reign so that we would begin to taste a little bit more of what it would look like if God was in charge here on earth. And so this is a message of renewal that John the Baptist brings. He's saying, hey, that time, that time where everything's gonna start to get set right, that time where you're gonna start to get a little taste of heaven, that time starts right here and right now. But there is a flip side to that promise. Because not everybody wants the world to be healed. And not everybody wants to see that kingdom come. Remember last week we talked about how there are two kingdoms, right? There's the kingdom that we're meant to seek after God's heart, but then there's the kingdom of our own heart, right? And, and that plays, all kinds of, plays out in all different kinds of ways. And so not, not everybody, even though they probably somewhere deep down inside they really want the kingdom of God, they oftentimes aren't willing to lay their lives down for it. They aren't willing to receive it the way it is. And so with that promise of the renewal of all things also came a promise of judgment. So these words of John the Baptist that sound pretty harsh, hey, the ax is coming. It's falling at the root of the tree. There's gonna be this separation that's happened. There was this warning that when the kingdom comes, not everybody is gonna like it. 
right? And, and there's going to be a judgment that's going to happen if we don't kind of uh, do what this is talking about and repent and get on board with the good kingdom that's going, that's going to happen. Now, I'm just going to be honest that sometimes uh, th- this is not a comfortable talk- topic to talk about for us today in church, right? If you grew up in, the, in my tradition, I grew up, ju- th- we didn't have any problem talking about judgment. So I'm, gonna be, I'm just gonna be very transparent with you. That's made me gun shy about talking about that kind of stuff. It makes me feel a little bit squirmish. Anyone else? Like, it's just kinda like, ugh, the, the judgment stuff says, ugh, right? But the reality is, if God is in charge, and he's coming and he's bringing goodness and healing. He loves us so much to say, I will not allow anything to stand that is going to bring ruin to my people. I'm just not going to do it. So God's judgment is loving. And what he's doing is saying, I love the world so much that I'm going to set things right. And I hope that all of you will respond to this message. But if you don't, it's not going to go good. <laughs> Right? I can get that as a father because I love my girls so much that that love is a jealous kind of love that I don't want anything to stand in their life that's going to bring them harm. Right? And one day, our loving father loves us so much that he's going to say everything that would harm my people is going to go. And so that's how, that's, that is the most loving thing that God can do. It's a very different way to think about the judgment and the justice of God. It's actually not good. I'm actually not being a loving father if I don't stand against the things that will harm my children. Do you see? So the world that God has in mind, where all things are made new, is one where there's no more sickness, no more disease, no more sin, none of that stuff. That's good news for us, right? So this should be something we say, yes, Lord, bring it. Set it right. Right? And that's what John the Baptist would be doing, saying, hey, there's good news. This is actually Jesus when he, when he begins to proclaim the good news. The gospel is that the kingdom is coming. There's really good news. That kingdom is here. It's near right now. So that's the message. But here's the thing. If you want to experience the goodness of that kingdom, there's a repentance that has to happen. There's a repentance that has, that has to happen. That word repent, uh, we've talked about this before in, in our context here at, at Fusion. Uh, it, it comes from a Greek word, which is metanoia, which on its most basic, simple level just means to have a change of mind. I was, Siri, what do you think? I don't know why she's talking. She's giving me a pasta recipe right now. How in the world? Like, and we're letting this thing give us directions? What is going on? Anyway. The metanoia has to do with simply just a change of mind. But it goes deeper than that. It's not just about a change of mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change in direction. I was going this way, I discovered something, and now I am going this way. Okay? It's a change of mind. And, uh, I mean, we'll just put this in, in terms. So imagine you lived somewhere on the world... And you didn't know anything about cheeseburgers. And one day, I brought you to McDonald's. And I said, this is a cheeseburger. And you ate that cheeseburger, and you were like, okay. I'm not sure if I like cheeseburgers or not. 
But then I took you to a place that served really good actual cheeseburgers. What's a place that served actual cheeseburgers? Portillo's. Wait, what? Who, what? Did someone say White Castle? What? No. What's Red Robin? All right, so you get the point. Uh, Belo's is my favorite burger around. So I'll take a free dinner for that Belo's, by the way. All right. So my favorite burger. So imagine if I then took that person to Belo's and said, hey, now this is actually a cheeseburger. They would probably have a change of mind. I thought this was a cheeseburger. I have discovered this is actually a cheeseburger. Uh, When I say the word cheeseburger, I no longer want McDonald's. I want the other thing. You got it, right? Or you could do the same thing. Imagine someone told you that Taco Bell was Mexican food, right? This doesn't work. Now I'm not saying I don't like Taco Bell. Also McDonald's, I will also take your rewards. It's fine. Anyway, you get the point. Yeah, you get the point. We digress. You learn something, and then you, you have a change of mind about it, leads you to a change of direction. Now that I know this thing, I can't keep going the way that I was going. And actually, the way that this ha- happens for us as human beings, and the way if we flesh out a, bit, a bigger picture, is we have a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of direction. Now, I, now that I know this and I can't think that way anymore, something has happened inside of me and I just can't do that thing anymore. Right? And so in a biblical sense, that repentance is actually something much deeper than just thinking differently, but it starts with thinking differently. It starts with responding to the truth. And so John the Baptist is saying, hey, if you want to experience this kingdom in all of its goodness, and you want to avoid the hardship and the difficulty that's going to come, it's going to require you to have a change in mind that leads to a change of direction. And repentance wasn't a new idea. As a matter of fact, we talked about this when we walked through the book of Nehemiah. Anybody remember this? The very first thing that happens in the book of Nehemiah is there's this process of repentance, and then it happens all over again later on in the book of Nehemiah. The whole nation goes through this process of repentance. It it is the thing that precedes renewal. You cannot have the kingdom of God, John the Baptist is saying, unless you go through this repentance. It's like as if there is something standing in the way of you receiving this kingdom. We'll talk a little bit more about exactly what that is and how that relates to us in a minute. But what we see is people respond to this message with confession. So that gives you a clue as to what this is, that as people, as people respond to this message, they start confessing their sins. So whatever it is, it has something to do with people saying, you know what? My life is not prepared to receive this kingdom. Something about my life is somehow standing in the way of me participating in this new thing that God is about to do. And so the people begin to confess and they get to begin to pour out. And that gets us to, to, to his message or his method. So there's his message and then there's method. So what happens is when people confess, John the Baptist, well, this is how he gets his name, baptizes people. He's standing on the banks of this river called the Jordan. It's a famous river in Israel. And he's taking people out into the water. And as far as we know, he takes them all the way down, just like we do today, and brings them back up from the water. Now, the Jewish people of the day had ceremonies that they did of washing, okay? 
Actually, even today, you can go and you can find, if you were to go around Israel, all these different places where they use to do ceremonial washing. Uh, and, and you will find even kind of big places where people took baths. Uh, that, um, that story about the pool at Bethsaida, remember that? So, so that's an example uh, of people who would do washing. However, this idea of baptizing was not something that the Jewish people of the day actually did. The people who got baptized were Gentiles, people who were not of the people of God, who didn't follow the law, who weren't a part of the covenant, if they wanted to be a part of the people of God. So by, by around this time, this practice had started that if you wanted to be a part of the covenant people of God, before you would do that as a part of doing that, is you actually had to go through a baptismal. You had to be dunked down into this water as a symbol that you were passing through the waters, just like the Israelites of old passed through the Red Sea, and that when you came out, then you were given the right to be a part of the people of God. So when John the Baptist starts preaching this message, and, and, and people start getting baptized, the crazy thing, and the thing that gets him in tons of trouble here, is that he's baptizing Jewish people. What is he saying by doing this? He's saying, it's as if you do not belong to the covenant people of God. It's as if you are a sinful person and you do not belong to the people of God. And just in case you're curious whether or not he really means that or not, he says right here in this passage, don't think that just because of your family line that you're a part of the sons of Abraham. God can raise up sons of Abraham. And right now, people are, as he's saying this, they're all going, why is this guy baptizing our people? And why are our people who have the covenant promises of God and know the law, why are those people getting baptized? They know this. And, 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 and remember, there's a whole system for how to deal with sin, right? There's a sacrifices that are made in the temple. And here's John the Baptist saying, that's not good enough. If you really want to be a part of the family of God, you have to act like you don't belong at all. That's what John the Baptist is saying. And you can imagine why this stirs up and rounds up people's frustration, right? Why the Pharisees and Sadducees going, hold on just a second, John the Baptist. We're all fine with you telling people to confess their sins, but you start telling people they're not a part of the family of God, we've got another problem. And then he says that exact thing to all the people who are in power. And he calls them a brood of vipers. I think we should bring that put down back. Like that's, that's, you know, I'm driving in my car and I'm angry, ugh, brood of vipers. You know, like this is a, this is like a major put down. Uh, he's essentially calling people one of the most despised creatures. They're associating the serpents, right, these vipers, with the devil. Genesis chapter three. Hey, you are people who, you're a whole crew of people who deceive people. Oh, man. And by the way, Jesus isn't any softer on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? He's constantly poking the bear saying, hey, you're like blind guides. You're whitewashed tombs. You think it looks, it's got all together, but inside it is not there. And so John the Baptist saying, ah, you're, a de you're deceivers just like they were. And actually some scholars even think Jesus was saying, uh, John the Baptist was saying something even more harsh when uh, oftentimes, I guess specifically uh, the, the, what John the Baptist was, would have been thinking about is certain vipers, certain sorts of snakes actually eat their mother when they're born. So the fact that he's saying like you are a brood of vipers, he's saying you're like a bunch of baby snakes who devour their mother. Ouch. Like, this is in the New Testament, guys, <laughs> right? 
I mean, why, why is he being so harsh? Well, because when you think you have all of the answers and you have it all put together, one, it's really easy to be judgmental of other people. And two, there's no humility in your life to receive the thing that God wants to do. And so he's calling them out in such a hardcore way because he wants them to participate in the kingdom of God. It sounds like he's trying to push them away, but actually he's trying to say, look, your hearts are so hard, there's no way you're ready for what Jesus is about to bring. And isn't that true in the story? It's the exception rather than the rule that any of the religious leaders of the day actually joined the message of Jesus. And John the Baptist was saying, you're just not ready, guys. You're just not ready. You have to repent. You have to, you have to turn away from where you are if you want to receive the Messiah. And it's no different for us than it was for them. If we want to experience the kingdom of God, we have to repent. We have to repent. It is the only way for us to experience true renewal or revival or however you want to say. The only way for us to truly experience the kingdom of God is for us to turn away from the things that are getting in the way of us receiving the kingdom of God. Sometimes that might be Sin. It just might be, that might be, it might be as simple as that. Like, don't you like it sometimes when it's just, like, it's just that simple. I, I know there are things that are going on in my life. The sin that I have in my life that's producing shame and guilt and condemnation is keeping me from experiencing the kingdom of God the way I know he wants me to. Do you, do you realize that the way that sin works is not that God is repulsed by you, the way that sin works is that the sin causes us, just like it did with Adam and Eve, to cover ourselves in shame and hide from God. Do you see that? That's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is when we do wrong, we push God away and we run from shame. Have you ever done something wrong between you and another person and you feel like, I just don't want to be near that person right now because I can't handle the guilt that I feel? You know what I mean? So imagine that with the God who knows everything about you happening at a subconscious level in your life. Sin is literally eating us alive from the inside out. There are like six therapists in the room. You guys see this every single day, right? The the shame that that we live with, that we carry over the things that we've done, and not to mention the things that have happened to us, right? That cause that brokenness in our life. And we, when we have that, that shame and that brokenness in our life, it, keep, it, help, it causes us to push God away when he's trying to draw near. He wants to invade our hearts with his kingdom. He wants for us to experience freedom. He wants for us to overcome our addictions. That's his desire. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. Like, but as long as we let that sin remain in our life, We let the shame remain in our life. And as long as the shame remains in our life, there's no way that we can fully uh, uh, experience the kingdom of God the way his heart desires for us to. You see what I mean? Sometimes it's not like heaviness, like like a heavy sin. Sometimes it's a way of thinking, like, or, or a way of existing. Like, look, sometimes people are just lazy. Let's, let's be honest. Can we have an honest conversation? 
Like, sometimes we're just lazy, doggone it. And we need to repent of the laziness. I could come up with a thousand therapeutic reasons why I don't get up and read my Bible. But the reality is I just didn't set my alarm clock and do it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and, like, and, and I, I'm not saying that reading your Bible will get you into heaven or doesn't. But I'm saying if I want to experience more of the kingdom of God in my life, it would be helpful if I know what the kingdom of God is about. And there's no way to do that unless I pick this thing up and I let it shape my mind, right? So what I have to repent of is laziness or apathy, right? Look, I know I'm oversimplifying, okay? So I'm gonna ask for a lot of grace here. Okay, you know my heart, I love you. All the qualifiers done and gone. But I'm, but just, I'm, I'm, I'm channeling John the Baptist right now, okay? And I'm being a lot nicer than him. I don't have like a fork and a winnowing, none of that. Like, this is just like, like, Sometimes we just have to turn away from the things that are hurting us. And it really is that simple. And sometimes that first step of repentance, maybe I don't have the ability to overcome it. Like maybe if I'm mired in some sort of addiction, the first step is just getting the help that I need to get over that. Do you see what I mean? Help me, Lord. Sometimes I know that I have false ideas and views about God, but the alternative feels a bit scary and intimidating. And so like, I don't, like, my repentance looks like learning what God is really like, right? Discovering who he really is. Sometimes that, sometimes that repentance, guess what? It is difficult to experience. You can experience the kingdom of God in your secret place, in your, in your room praying. You can do that. I've, I've had incredible encounters with God in my own house by myself. But there is nothing like experiencing the kingdom of God with other people. And sometimes the repentance looks like just like, don't be apathetic. Get out and see the people. Like, be with God's people. Sometimes repentance just look like a cry for help. One of the worst things that you can do is stay stuck because you're not willing to ask for help, right? And repentance looks like a cry for help. I cannot do it on my own anymore. God, the kingdom of God is drawn to that level of weakness and humility. It's absolutely drawn to it when people say help. I cannot do it on my own. I'm telling you right now, where there is pride, there's not much room for the kingdom of God to land. Where pride decreases and humility begins to increase, so does the effect of the kingdom of God in our life. And that's what John the Baptist is saying to all of these people. It's like, look, I know you think you want the kingdom of God, but your hearts are not ready for it. And so there has to be a repentance, there has to be a confession, there has to be a changing of your ways. And John the Baptist specifically says, uh, repent, and there should be fruit that comes along with that. So oftentimes we think of repentance and confession as simply saying words, I'm sorry, I shouldn't do that anymore. John the Baptist says, no, repentance actually looks like something looks different. As an aside, if you were to, to pick this up and read it in the Gospel of Luke, there's, and sometimes in the, in the Gospels there are parallel accounts. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke fleshes out a little bit more of what John the Baptist's message is here, and he talks specifically about caring for the poor and how the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been oppressing the poor. And he gives them some very specific instructions. Matthew has intentionally left it broad here because he wants us to think bigger. It's not just about that, it's about everything. 
It's about our whole life. So the question for, for me is, do I want to experience the renewal of God in my life? If so, it's going to require for me to go through a process of repentance. I can't receive all that God has for me and stay exactly where I am. Now look, this on its own could be just a fire and brimstone, get right with God, you do the work, okay? But here, I want you to step back for a second and see. This is a messenger from God sending a message of grace to his people. The kingdom of God is coming. Repent and believe the good news. And the very next thing that happens is Jesus is going to come on the scene and show people this is how you live. And then what we know from the life of Jesus and what John the Baptist, John the Baptist said is one day, this one's going to baptize you with fire. So I'm baptizing you with water, but that one's going to baptize you with fire. And what John the Baptist is saying is, there's actually something in all of this that you can't do for yourself. You're going to need to be changed from the inside out, and only God can do that. That's why the promise way back when of Jeremiah and Ezekiel was that God himself would take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that he would write his laws on our heart, that these wouldn't just be rules for us to follow, but that he would literally change us from the inside out. The grace of God is that all we have to do to, is respond to this message, and he is willing to meet us and help us. There are so many promises of God that he, will, that he is literally with us, that his spirit lives in us. If you have invited Jesus into your life and you've, and you've yielded your life over to him, he is willing to help you every step of the way. This isn't like when you get yourself right with God, then God comes in. That's not how this works. Actually, in this story, God is already there. God has sent John the Baptist to say, I'm here to help guys. Like, so this isn't something that you have to do or I have to do on my own. This is like something that God is already near. He's already with us. And if you're in Christ, then he's already inside of you. And he is working on you from the inside out. He is renewing your mind right now. Even while I'm preaching, even while you've been sitting here tonight, God is working in your mind. He's working in your heart, if you are willing. But the call is always to remind us that he wants us to be participants in this. He doesn't want us to be passive. It's not... It's not, a, it's not a passive thing. Let me just say that. Grace is not opposed to effort. That's a, that's a Dallas Willard phrase, right? Like, grace says, I'm here, Chael, and when you are ready to step out of this meth, my hand is right here with you. Just grab a hold of it, and we will do this, and it will be amazing. And all you have to do is trust me. That's God's grace to us. That's his mercy to us. And so it's up to us to stay, kind of say, yes, Lord, I want that. I want to receive your freedom. And repentance is simply that. It's saying, God, I am done with trying to do this on my own. I'm done with trying to clean my life up by myself. I'm done with trying to do all these things. Like, I, and so I just confess, Lord, that I cannot do it, that only you can do inside of me ultimately the work that needs to be done, only you. Repentance is ultimately a road to humility. To, to, to asking God and recognizing, God, I can't do this on my own. And actually what we'll see all throughout the rest of the gospel of Matthew is that when people are willing to be humble, when people are willing to repent, when they're willing to say, help Jesus, he is always willing to help. It's so beautiful. 
doesn't turn anybody away. There are many people who won't respond to that message of repentance. And Jesus increases, guys, like, it's going to go bad for you. Like, I so badly want to protect you. I so badly want to cover you. I so badly want to be, I so badly want you to experience my kingdom. Remember, there's a story, for some of you who know your Bible well, you'll know there's a story where Jesus, like, weeps over Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how, how I've longed to gather together you like little chicks. It's like this tender heart of Jesus to say, I just, I long for you to experience the freedom. But there's no way that you can do that unless you're willing to repent, unless you're willing to turn away from the things that you're, that, that right now are the things that you're holding on to that you feel like are, are the things that you need. It's like, no, you don't need those, you need me. And the good news in all of this, Mark, you guys, you can come on up, is that his grace is sufficient for us. He doesn't need us to strengthen ourselves. He doesn't need for us to to fix ourselves. He's just so willing to partner with you in your healing. So willing to bring you his kingdom. So willing to flood your life with hope and joy. I feel like sometimes, though, I, I don't know, uh, in my life I felt like, okay, God, show me. Do it. Just do the thing to me. That's not the posture of coming into the kingdom. Jesus says, unless you enter into the kingdom like a little child, you can't enter into the kingdom. And Jesus isn't talking about being innocent. That's not what he means when he's talking about you. Jesus was really smart. He knew that kids are evil too. Sorry, kids. He didn't have any of his own, but he saw us like, you know, people around. So he's not talking about being innocent. Like he's talking about being needy like children. Like when my kid breaks a toy and says, dad, will you fix it? I don't know how to do it. When, you're, when your kid is sick and they, they don't know how much medicine they should take. Dad, I need, I need some medicine. Like, that's how we enter into the kingdom, saying, Jesus, I need the medicine. I need you to fix this. I need, God, I need you to step into this and fix this. I can't. That's the way we enter into the kingdom of God, is saying, like, I, I, the only way we can do this is with you. That's what this repentance is that John the Baptist is talking about. And sometimes that looks like confessing our sins, because that's the thing that's getting in the way of us receiving the kingdom. But like I said, it's a whole host of other things. What is it for you? What's standing in the way of you receiving the kingdom of God? What's standing in the way of you experiencing the renewal that God wants for you? Uh, And God promises that it will be better for you if you will go with his way rather than your way. That's what John the Baptist is saying. Like, look, like, make this change while the time is right now. Don't wait Don't wait until you have it figured out. I've just been asking the Lord throughout the week, God, I I don't know, how do we respond to a message like this? Like, in the old days, in my my church upbringing, someone would, like, blow a shofar, and there would be, you know, if you don't know what a shofar is, you're fine. It's It's a ram's horn. It's a weird thing people do in church, and it's weird, but fine. Uh, 
But we would have like a really, like a deep altar call, like, and there would be lots of people crying and, and I'm like, Lord, if that's what you want, I'm fine with that. Like, you know, if you just want people confessing their sins, actually James says, confess your sins one to, not, one to another, right? So I'm not even sure that we're just supposed to confess our sins like on our own here, like, I, I, like and just have a moment alone. Like, I truly don't know what we're supposed to do. Like, but here's what I know. I know that the Lord wants us to have a repentant lifestyle. I know he wants us to wake up tomorrow and say, Jesus, I don't want anything in my life to stand in the way of receiving your kingdom today. I don't want anything in my life to, to keep me from experiencing your kingdom today. I don't, I don't want it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read. This is going to feel a little bit different. but Isaiah 51. And I want to ask you just to close your eyes. This is a famous psalm of repentance. And I want to read it over you. And as I'm reading, I'm just going to trust that the Spirit of God is going to move in your heart and that you will respond in the way that you need to respond. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. And here's the cry, here's our ask of God. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be water than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And here's the center of it all. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant to me a willing spirit to sustain me. I'm gonna read that part again and I'm just gonna let that sink in. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And do not cast me from your presence or take me from your, take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me. Some of you need to cry out, just restore to me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and give me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. 
Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing songs of righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. Just ask the Lord how he wants that to settle into your heart right now. And if you have anything that you feel like you need to confess, just go ahead and just begin to confess some things to the Lord right now. What does turning to God look like for you right here, right now? Offering yourself to the Lord right now. What does that look like for you in this moment in time? You know, laying down at night and confessing your sin, saying, God, I'm sorry for that thing that happens or that I did, that's a really good and important thing to do. But repentance is so much more than that. Repentance is more than just a, I'm sorry and I promise I won't do it again. Repentance is a desperation cry to say, God, I so need you right now. Repentance is a set me free. Repentance is a, is a, is a, is a saying, God, I want to partner with you in, the, in, in, in finally overcoming this addiction. Repentance is, is saying, no more excuses, Lord. I throw myself on your mercy seat. And repentance is the pathway to refreshing and renewal. It says in the book of Acts, I think it's Peter who's preaching a sermon. He says, repent so that times of refreshing may come to you. You can't experience the refreshing of your heart that God wants for you without repentance. You gotta clear out the clutter. You gotta remove it. Like God says, yes, I just want such good things for you. His desire for you is good, but, it, like, but we're standing in the way of receiving that goodness.
reading a book right now on prayer, and, and uh, it's a great book. I'll recommend it later, but he, here's a quote. He says, one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the modern church is to, re- is to reimagine spiritual maturity as the need to confess less. The unspoken assumption is, as long as I ascend in relationship with God, I confess less because I have less to confess. But true spiritual maturity, though, is the opposite. It is not an ascension. It's an archaeological dig as we discover layer after layer of what was in us all along. Spiritual maturity means more confession, not less. Maturity is is discovering the depths of my personal brand of fallenness and the depths to which God's grace has has really penetrated it, even without me knowing it. So I pray, Lord, that you'll penetrate into the depths of our soul, the depths of our brokenness, the things, the fallenness that's in our heart that we're not even aware, Lord. God, would you, would you come, Lord? Let us, God, those of us who have been walking with you for 60 years or six years, Lord, let us come before you, Lord, to receive re- forgiveness and refreshing, Lord. You're so kind, and I want your kindness and your mercy to be evident in my life, Lord. Lord, I repent before you for my sins. Against you only have I sinned, Lord. Create in me a pure heart, God. Search me, God, and know me, God. And if there's any offensive way in me, Lord, would you let me know, God? Would you show it to me, Lord? The author of this book goes on to talk about something called the Moravian Revival. If you've never heard of that, it's, uh, it's really the reason why John Wesley and many missionary, the many missionary movements got started in the last 300 years or so. And one of the things that they're most known for is they had a 100-year-long prayer meeting. Isn't that crazy? Nonstop prayer for 100 years, generation after generation. I can't fathom that. And that sparked this great missionary movement that had really changed the world as we, as we know it. It's the reason why many of us are probably know, know the Lord now. We can trace our historical spiritual roots back to that revival that started. But this author shows how that really started with a night of confession that what they're known for is the 100-year prayer movement, but they would all say where this began was us confessing our sins to one another. So I don't know what God wants to do with us in that midst, and I have no desire to stir something up. I just, I don't have, I don't want any part of that. But what I do want is the Holy Spirit to guide our hearts and our minds into what he wants for our church family. And if what he would like is for us to confess sins, I'm just gonna trust that that movement will happen when it needs to happen. And I'm gonna trust that that repentance is gonna lead us to the renewal and the revival that we want. Look, there's, I just wanna, I wanna confess right now that I believe that God has called Fusion Church to be a renewal church. He's called us to be a revival church, to reset and restore passion for Jesus in the lives of his people. That's what he's called me to as a pastor, and that's what he's called this church to. And here's what I know is we can't do that if we also don't have repentance. So let's not be afraid of the repentance that God wants to do, okay? Let's not want the one thing without going through the, going through the door and on the road of repentance for renewal. 
So if you wanna stick around and pray for a little bit or, or more about that, that would be great. Stick around and do it. I'd ask that you'd respectfully just kind of leave this a quiet space for anybody that wants to do that. If not, go. Hey, and I just pray that there'll be repentance and revival in your home. I pray that tomorrow when you read your Bible, conviction of the Holy Spirit falls on you unlike you've never experienced before. And I pray that God renews your mind so that you are a new person when you walk in here next week. Have a great week. Love you guys.